All right, we'll take your Bibles and turn back to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to return to our series we're calling Battle Ready, looking at the armor of God here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, and learning how we can stand our ground in the strength of the Lord. And I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. In fact, I just uh, was recently invited to speak at a men's retreat this coming fall, and I've already decided that this is what I'm going to teach. I think this will be really uh, helpful stuff for uh, the men of this local church that I'm going to get to spend a few days with. And so, uh, thanks for being the guinea pigs, right? Just kidding. I think about you guys first when it comes to uh, teaching God's Word, and then whatever, whenever I get an opportunity to go speak somewhere else, it's just something that we've learned together uh, here as a church. And so, let's go ahead and reread Ephesians chapter 6 and uh, verses 10 through 16 tonight. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to study your word together. We ask that your spirit would work amongst us illuminating our minds to understand what uh, this shield of faith is really all about and how it practically applies to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are a number of preachers who have made an impact on my life and ministry. Some are old dead guys. Uh, Some are still alive and well. One of the old dead guys is Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he wrote a classic book, and if you've not read it, you need to at some point. It needs to be on your book bucket list, and that is spiritual depression, spiritual depression. But listen to what he wrote in the opening chapter of this book. He said, quote, the ultimate cause of all spiritual depression is unbelief. For if it were not for unbelief, even the devil could do nothing. It is because we listen to the devil instead of listening to God that we go down before him and fall before his attacks. One of those preachers who's still alive and well is John Piper. John Piper preached a sermon series back in 1988 to his church up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the, uh, the series title was called Battling Unbelief. And this is how he began that series. And I quote, he said, all sins come from unbelief in the promises of God. Anxiety, misplaced shame, 
indifference, regret, covetousness, envy, lust, bitterness, impatience, despondency, pride. These are all sprouts from the root of unbelief in the promises of God. Now, as best I can tell, this series laid the groundwork for a book that he would later write back in 1995 called Future Grace. Anybody read that book, Future Grace by John Piper? Uh, Fascinating book. I'd encourage you to get it. It's actually designed to be a 31-day devotional. Uh, It's pretty intimidating (laughs) to get through in a month, but there's 31 readings, um, and I would encourage you to uh, consider it. I commend it to you. But in that book, Piper said this, quote, the number one aim of Satan is the destruction of faith. All his efforts, one way or the other, is the prevention or destruction of faith. He goes on to reference the following passages to prove that point. Luke chapter 22, verse 31, when uh, Jesus said to Simon, he said, Simon, Simon, Peter, obviously, right? Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your, what? Faith may not fail. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, Paul said this, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In other words, Satan attacks Christians' faith. And then 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your, what? Faith. And Piper concludes, he said, it makes sense that the very thing that Satan wants to destroy would also be the means of our resisting his efforts. The way to thwart the devil is to strengthen the very thing he's trying most to destroy. And I say all that because I think that's why Paul commanded us to take up the shield of what? What is it called? The shield of faith here in Ephesians chapter 6. And and this is just one of six pieces of spiritual armor that God has provided us to enable us to stand firm against Satan. And and by the way, I hope you uh, are noticing and appreciating here that in this epic passage on spiritual warfare, Paul wasn't providing some special education or equipment for those involved in exorcisms and casting out demons, but he was simply reminding every Christian of some of the most basic spiritual resources that God provides us for our normal everyday life. Are you seeing that? This is like, you're probably not learning anything new. You haven't heard anything new. It's just applying principles from all over the scriptures to these specific pieces of armor which they represent. Now, it seems to me, based on the way the grammar works here in in these 10 verses, that these six pieces of armor can be divided into two groups of three. We've already looked at the first group, the belt, the breastplate, and the shoes. And tonight, we're going to begin looking at the second group, the shield, the helmet, and the sword. Notice the transition here in verse 16, he says, in addition to all or above all, again, not this is, I don't think this is a matter of importance since, since all are equally important. I think Paul's thought was here was, was what the NAS says, in addition to, 
the first three pieces of armor, take up the remaining three pieces of armor. And there's a, there's a distinction here between having girded your loins and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having your feet shod uh, with the preparation of the gospel. Now it says taking up the shield of faith and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. So there's a contrast there between having something and taking something. So the first three pieces of armor are, uh, you could say, maybe permanently attached to our bodies, whereas the last three pieces are, are something that we quickly grab when we're under attack. It's like a soldier who maybe is resting in the barracks. He keeps on his belt and his body armor and his boots, but he takes off his helmet and he lays his gun maybe next to his bed, but he keeps them both with an arm's length so no one catches him off guard if he's attacked. Maybe another way to look at that would be, or look at this, would be like a baseball player in a dugout. He, he wears his uniform, he wears his cleats, and he wears his hat, but he doesn't, doesn't wear his glove, right? He doesn't, doesn't have his glove on. He, he doesn't have his helmet on. Uh, he, he's not sitting there holding his bat unless he's ready to go up right to the plate. Or a football player, right? He's on the sidelines. He's got his uniform on. He's got his shoulder pads and his, 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 his cleats on. But he doesn't wear his helmet necessarily. He's just kind of either holding it in his hand or he's got it on that little thing they put it on. But he's close by so he can grab it, right? When he gets called to go into the game, he grabs it and puts it on. So with that as a background here as we launch into the last three pieces of armor, uh, we need to understand what Paul was referring to when he talks about this shield of faith. Again, he's looking at the Roman soldier uh, going to war, and he's drawing the analogy from that. And so there were two kinds of Roman shields. The first kind was a small round shield made of metal that was secured to the soldier's arm by two leather straps, and it was used for more hand-to-hand combat. For you kids, just picture... um, Captain America, okay? That, that round shield would be kind of like that kind of shield. That's not the shield, the kind of shield that Paul was thinking of or referring to here. He was referring to the other kind of shield that Roman soldiers would use, which was a large rectangular door-like shield, which was maybe four and a half feet high and two and a half feet wide. And uh, it was so big, a soldier could crouch down behind that shield and it protected their entire body. In fact, it was made with metal edges uh, that were constructed in such a way that they, the entire, an entire line of soldiers could, could connect, interlock their shields in front of them and march forward towards the enemy like a solid wall. Or they could actually put them above their heads and hook them together and form a protective roof over their heads. It was called the tortoise formation. It's kind of like a turtle shell protecting them from the the enemy uh, um, fire. These shields were made of steel or wood frames covered with layers of leather and they would soak the shields in water before battle to extinguish the flaming arrows that were shot at them by the enemy. And that was very common. I'm sure you've watched movies or studied in school and history that in ancient warfare, armies would often dip the tips of their arrows into pitch or some other flammable substance, and they would light them on fire, and they would shoot them at the enemy. And they were doubly dangerous because not only did they kill people, they would set things on fire all around them. 
And so Paul makes this analogy here. He says, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Obviously, the evil one is a reference to Satan. And he shoots flaming arrows at us. Fiery trials and temptations, missiles, if you will, of greed or lust or jealousy or materialism or anger or fear or discontent or worry or pride or wicked, hateful thoughts, skepticism, doubts, even blasphemous thoughts, perhaps. Now, obviously, these are not literal flaming arrows, but they take the form of worldly pleasures that appeal to our fleshly lusts or desires which wage war against our soul. We learned about that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. And we've also been learning that, that we are constantly being ganged up on. Where this is not, we're not just fighting against one enemy, we got uh, a trifecta, if you will, who is joined forces, and that is, of course, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they all, their, their goal is to take us out, to take us down. And the devil knows that our flesh is like a powder keg. All it takes is just one little spark to ignite our sinful passions. Our, our sinful hearts are, are highly flammable. Richard Gurnall, who was a Puritan, wrote a three-volume um, commentary, if you will, on uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, and it's called The Christian in Complete Armor, and he said this, that Satan's fiery darts don't fall on ice or snow, but on a thatched roof. You know what a thatched roof is, right? Just uh, uh, made out of, uh, you know, bamboo or made out of uh, palm branches or something that, that is, they, they, they're very flammable, and they, they could go up in smoke very easily. And again, you can turn there if you'd like, but we've already mentioned this a couple of times, but this is so critical uh, for us to understand. 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, talking about Satan's arsenal here. These are Satan's main weapons. John writes, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So you have these three weapons, and they can take all sorts of different forms, but first of all, you have the lust of the flesh, which is the pleasures of life. Uh, this is perhaps the desire for sensual pleasure, uh, maybe ease or comfort. Um, this would be uh, maybe divulged in some kind of sexual immorality uh, or manifest in some kind of laziness or gluttony, that's the lust of the flesh, anything that has to do with our physical body. And then you have the lust of the eyes, which are the possessions. So this is a, a desire for profit or material things. This could be manifest by maybe overworking because you, are, you have a, an insatiable love of money and so you want more and more and more and so you overwork or perhaps you, you, you're given over to gambling uh, trying to uh, make more money without earning it. Um, maybe maybe uh, this could be manifested in debt, right? You saw something that you really wanted but couldn't afford, and so you got yourself in debt to, to have it. 
That's the lust of the eyes. And then there's the pride of life, which is the position or the prestige or the popularity or, or the power. This is a, a desire for approval or acceptance, to, to be respected, to be regarded as, as a success, to be in control, to have power. Again, what is, how is this manifested? Well, it could be uh, an over-obsession with how you look or what other people think of you. Um, it could be giving into peer pressure, right? Going along with the crowd because you, want, uh, you care about your reputation and what people think of you. So these are the three things that Satan has used ever since the beginning of time to get people to sin. And again, we've pointed this out already, but again, this is important because it's leading us to this whole idea of the role of faith um, in our uh, defense against Satan. But Genesis chapter 3 Again, familiar territory here. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made, and said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And guess what? God doesn't like competition. I know. I found that out the hard way. I was up in heaven, thought I'd, you know, give him a little healthy competition. He didn't like it. He kicked me out. So you just need to know this God you're dealing with. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh, and it was a delight to the eyes, that's the lust of the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, that's the pride of life. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Question is, why did Adam and Eve fail to stand firm against Satan's attack in the garden? Well, what's the key phrase here? If you were to pick out a phrase uh, in these six verses... What would you pick it out, pick out? I would submit to you, and it's in verse one. When Satan said, "Indeed, has God said?" In other words, did God really say this? And so at the end of the day, they chose to believe Satan instead of God. And we learn a lot. I mean, if we go to school on Adam and Eve here in Genesis chapter 3, you can learn a lot about temptation and sin and how to resist it. And it's this, that Satan is always telling us something opposite of what God has said in his word. Or perhaps he's just slightly skewing it or distorting it. He gives you a, kind of a distorted version of his word. And he wants, us to, he wants to convince us that, that God is not good that he's holding out on us, that we're missing out on something. And he caused uh, Eve and to, to question God's goodness. And so we need to understand that every one of Satan's temptations is an attempt to get us to doubt or distrust God and his word and believe him instead. Let me say that again. Every one of Satan's temptations is an attempt to get us to doubt or distrust God and his word and believe him instead. We give in to temptation 
when we believe what Satan has to offer is better than what God has promised. Did you get that? We give in to temptation whenever we believe that what Satan has to offer is better than what God has promised. So we need to never doubt God's word, but just do what he says. Even when Satan makes his way look better or sound better and more enjoyable than God's way. Because every time we, we give into temptation, what we're doing is we are believing Satan. And consequently, we are calling God a liar. 1 John 5.10, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. In other words, God, I don't believe what you say. You're a liar. I believe what Satan says. Well, we know that's totally mixed, messed up because the Bible says, who is the liar? Satan, right? John 8, 44, Satan is a liar and the father of all lies. And so maybe look at it this way. Every fiery arrow that Satan launches against you is a lie. And in the same way we said on Sunday that it might help instead of saying I'm being tempted right now, to think of it as, no, I'm being deceived right now. I'm being conned right now. I'm being scammed right now. Or maybe another way you could say it is, I'm being lied to right now. I'm being lied to right now. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. The thief is a reference to Satan. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So, how are we to deal with these, these lies that Satan launches against us on a regular basis? These fiery trials and temptations, these constantly bombarding us, how, how do we extinguish them? Well, we do it with the shield of faith. You say, okay, so what's the shield of faith back in Ephesians chapter 6? Well, it's not referring to the faith, like doctrine, like the Christian faith, um, it's not referring to our faith, in other words, our salvation, um, but it's, it's just simply referring to our basic belief and trust and confidence in who God is and what he has said in his word. That's all, it's the shield of faith. It's, 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 it's trusting God and what he has said. Scripture gives us a definition of this faith, Hebrews 11.1, 1. now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So there's a future aspect of grace. That's why John Piper titled his book Future Grace. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, things that we're looking forward to, things that God has promised to us that will happen in the future. We, we can't even see them, but we're convinced of them anyway. That's why the Bible says that we live by faith, not by sight. Hebrews eleven six in that same context, the writer says, and without faith, it is what? Impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So again, faith is another word for belief. If you remember, we, were, we started off this message tonight talking about unbelief and how that's the root of all sin. 
And the reason why we say that is because what is the opposite of unbelief? It's belief, it's faith. And faith really is essentially taking God at his word. It's counting on him to do exactly what he said he will do. And we know that God never breaks his promises. He always keeps his promises. And so we need to be absolutely convinced that if he said it, he will do it. Both good and bad. In other words, when God says something, he means it. And he does it. If he says it's good, guess what? It's good. If he says it's bad, guess what? It's bad. Listen to some of the promises that God has made in his word, both positive and negative. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. The reason why I know that verse is because I had a mom like Z did, right, who put the fear of God in me, and that was her favorite verse. She used to always tell me, be sure your sin will find you out. She was always catching me doing something wrong, you know, and she'd remind me of that verse. How about this, Psalm 34, 10, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. What a great promise. If you seek the Lord, you will never miss out on anything. You'll never lack any good thing in your life. Psalm 84, 11, love this. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. Good tie in there. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You either believe that or you don't. Bottom line, you either believe that or you don't. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So faith is holding on to his promises and also heeding his promises. Some of the promises come in more of the form of a threat. So holding on to his promises and heeding his threats, that's what faith is. Now again, Jesus is another person, of course, to go to school on, Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Christ. It's interesting to see how Satan manipulated God's word, trying to tempt Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, you remember it says, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, again, quoting scripture, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the glory, or excuse me, all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and began to minister to him. What was Satan doing there? He was quoting scripture to the incarnate word, to Jesus. But what he was doing was he was twisting it and, and, and implying that Jesus couldn't count on God to keep his word. 
Probably the most outstanding thing is when he said, if, if you are the son of God, right? He, he's testing him. Are, are you, you're not really the son of God. If you were, you'd do this. And so again, he was implying that, that, that he couldn't count on God to keep his word. He hadn't fed him for 40 days. He was hungry. So, hey, just take matters into your own hands. How often do we find ourselves in that situation, right? We, we, we lack faith in God. We're like the kings in the Old Testament who were not supposed to offer sacrifices. Only the priests were to do that, but the priest wasn't around. And so they decided, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And so Jesus essentially responded to Satan saying, listen, I believe God's word. I believe what God said more than what you're telling me. God's going to feed me. God's going to anoint me as the Messiah. And God's going to give me the kingdoms of the earth when he's ready. In his way and in his time. I believe that he will keep his promises to me. Look at Hebrews 11. This might be some new territory, so it'd be good for you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 11. Of course, this is the, the hall of faith, this chapter, well-known, just chronicles all the great men and women of the Old Testament by faith and what they accomplished by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, and you get to chapter 11, verse 24, and well, verse 23, you get to Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So Moses' mother had faith to hide him rather than to let him be killed like all the other um, male babies were being killed according to the Pharaoh's edict. But then notice Moses' faith, verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. By the way, what is that? The pride of life, right? Man, he's, he's like the son of Pharaoh. Verse 25, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What's that? That's the pleasures, right? The lust of the flesh. Then look at verse 26. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. There's the possessions. For he was looking to the reward. So Moses passed up the position. He passed up the pleasures. He passed up the possessions. And the question is, what would you and I do if we were in that situation, if we were in his sandals, what would you do? Well, guess what? You are in his sandals because these are the same things, same three things Satan is offering to us on a daily basis and every day we need to choose to pass them up. You say, well, how am I going to do that? Well, the same way Moses did by what? Faith. By faith. Again, the first that starts this whole chapter, verse one, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. God had promised Moses a future hope and reward, and he believed God. He trusted and he obeyed God. Notice verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, 
not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Again, living by faith, not by sight. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he uh, who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. And then by faith, verse 29, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Those were all very scary things that God commanded Moses to do, to lead his people out of Egypt, to um, protect the people with the Passover so all the firstborn of the, the Israelites wouldn't die, and then, of course, they got to the Red Sea, and God told him to raise up his staff and tell the people to walk through. But he did it all by faith. What, in other words, Moses simply just took God at his word. And so again, the bottom line here in the battle against sin and temptation is who are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? You can either believe God or you can believe Satan. Satan tells us, well, I know the Bible says you're not supposed to have sex outside of marriage, but trust me, it'll be fun. Satan tells us, I, I know the Bible says you're not supposed to get divorced, but, but you know, you're in a miserable marriage and God wants you to be happy. Or Satan tells us, I, I know the Bible says you're not supposed to be dishonest or steal, but everyone fudges a little bit on their expense report and whenever they file their income taxes, it's not that big of a deal. They'll never find out. Their government's got enough money already. So if we want to stand firm against Satan, we need to choose to believe God no matter what Satan or the world or the flesh is telling us to believe. Again, John Piper, in his book, Future Grace, says this. He says, the battle against sin is a battle against unbelief. So we're back to this whole idea of unbelief being the root of all sin. He says, suppose I'm tempted to lust. Some sexual image comes into my mind and beckons me to pursue it. The way this temptation gets its power is by persuading me to believe that I will be happier if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. The word of God cuts through the fog of Satan's lies and shows me where true and lasting happiness is to be found. And so the word helps me stop trusting in the potential of sin to make me happy. Instead, the word entices me to trust in God's promises. And then he says this to make it really applicable. He says, we do not yield to the offer of sandwich meat when we can smell the steak sizzling on the grill. In other words, would you have, would rather have a, a piece of bologna or a, a, a prime rib or a ribeye or a Texas T-bone? I mean, come on. If I had them in front of you, would you, who'd take the bologna, the piece of bologna or the steak, right? It's like there's no choice there. My favorite part of uh, Future Grace or my favorite thing about Future Grace is he has all these chapters, uh, future grace versus a sin, future grace versus pride, future grace versus um, anxiety, uh, future grace versus jealousy. 
uh, future grace versus greed. And, and he shows how each, how this whole concept of, of, of battling um, sin um, with faith in God, uh, he, sh- he shows how it applies to each one of these. He also has a chapter uh, called Future Grace versus Lust. And he, and he shares a story there, an article, in fact, by a guy who confessed to many years of bondage to pornography. And he said this, what finally empowered him to escape his lustful habit was a new understanding of Matthew 5.8, which says, Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this is what this guy wrote after reading Matthew 5.8 and thinking about it. He said, the thought hit me like a bell rung in a dark, silent hall. So far, none of the scary negative arguments against lust had succeeded in keeping me from it. But here was a description of what I was missing by continuing to harbor lust. I was limiting my own intimacy with God. Could he, God, in fact, substitute another thirst, another hunger for the one I had never filled? Would living water somehow quench lust? And he ended by this, with this statement. He said, that was the gamble of faith. That was the gamble of faith. Was I going to believe that or not? And Piper concluded, he said, it, it, it was not a gamble. You can't lose when you turn to God. The way to fight lust is to feed faith with the precious and magnificent promise that the pure in heart will see face to face the all-satisfying God of glory. The challenge before us in our fight against lust or fill in any sin for that matter is not merely to do what God says because he's God, but to desire what God says because he's glorious. Did you hear that? The challenge before us in our fight against sin is not merely to do what God says because he's God, but to desire what God says because he's glorious. And then he says this, the challenge is not merely to pursue righteousness, but to prefer righteousness. Big difference. I know know all of you are out there pursuing righteousness. Right, that's what it means to be a Christian. That's part of being a Christian, right? It's pursuing righteousness. But do you prefer righteousness? Well, how do we take up the shield of faith practically? What does this look like practically? Well, I appreciate the simple statement that John MacArthur made in his book, How to Meet the Enemy. In answer to that question, how do you take up the shield of faith, he said this, it's consistently trusting and applying what you know to be true about God to the issues of life. That's all it is. It's consistently trusting and applying what you know to be true about God to the issues of life. 2 Samuel 22, 31, the word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says something very similar. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. In other words, God is a shield to those who trust him and and particularly trust his word, which is true, as opposed to the lies of Satan. And so as long as you trust God and his word, your shield is up. But as soon as you don't trust God, 
or fail to believe something that he said in his word, guess what? Your, your shield is down and you're wide open for attack. So let me just give you five quick applications, if you will, ways to take up the shield of faith. I've been trying to end these messages with just some bullet points. I've got five of them tonight really quick. Number one, never forget that Satan is a liar and a deceiver. Never forget Satan is a liar and a deceiver. He presents the bait but hides the what? The hook. 2 Corinthians 2, 11, again, Paul says, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, don't be ignorant of his schemes. So just know Satan and how he works. What is his number one scheme? He lies to us. He deceives us. He tricks us. He cons us. He scams us. Number two, always take God at his word. Always take God at his word because unlike Satan, God does not lie. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? In other words, if God says it, he's going to do it. It's going to happen. Good and bad. Titus 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, God cannot lie. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. And so every time we choose to sin, we exchange, exchange some truth of God for a lie. Romans chapter 125. We're like, you know what? Yeah, no, that's the truth. I don't need that one. I'm just going to believe this lie instead. And again, we need to live by faith and not by sight. This is part of taking God at his word. 2 Corinthians 1.24, in your faith you are standing firm. 1 John 5, 4, this is a good one. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So again, you see how these, you know, th these uh, pieces of armor are really just principles that, that, that are all over Scripture? Um, so, Remember or never forget that Satan is a liar and a deceiver. Always take God at his word. Number three, cherish and claim the promises of God. Cherish and claim the promises of God. Listen to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So we need to cherish and, and, and claim the promises of God. And that's, if for no other reason, that's why you should have your quiet time tomorrow morning. It's to go on a, a promise search. Go, go, go start searching the scriptures for, for all the promises that God has made to you. Like, for example, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I love this promise. It's actually three promises in one. Paul said, no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man and God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you're able. But with every trial, with every temptation, he'll provide a way of, the, the, for you to escape so you can endure it. Now, that's a promise. In fact, there's, there's three promises there. Number one, that no temptation is remarkable. 
In other words, you can't ever say, well, you just don't understand. I'm the only one who's ever had to deal with this. That's not true. Whatever you're dealing with is, is common to man. There's other people who struggle with the very same thing. And, and the other promise there is that no temptation is unbearable or irresistible. Oh, it's just so hard. I just, I just can't help myself. It's just, no, he'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. And then the third promise is that no temptation is inescapable. He'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. So again, what a great promise to, to, to cherish and to claim next time temptation is staring you in the face, quote that verse and, 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 and claim those promises. I don't, I don't have to give in to this temptation. There's a way of escape. I need to endure. Some of you that are a little on the older side, like me, I'm including myself in this, you'll remember that old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God, right? That's a, that's a great hymn that we need to stand on the promises of God. So always, or never forget that Satan is a liar and deceiver, always take God at his word, cherish and claim the promises of God. How about this? Stay closely connected to other strong believers. Stay closely connected to other strong believers. And this is referencing back to the, how Paul described the shield, right, that was intended to be used alongside others. There was a reason why they were interlocking shields. And as long as the soldiers remain attached together in that tortoise formation or that wall, they were undefeatable. And in the same way, God designed our faith to function together with other Christians. It's called the body of Christ. He never expected any of us to be the lone soldier out there, the lone survivor out there. Because we have one another. And so when you think about it, there, there, there is no such thing, or God never intended there to be personal demons, or private battles, or private struggles. You hear about all the, you know, that's, he, he had his personal demons, or he had his private battles, or his private struggles. Well, that's just because he didn't take advantage of the body of Christ. God never intended us to have to deal with personal, private battles. We're called by God to fight together and we're commanded to help one another and to receive help as well. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, brethren, it, it, um, it says, uh, if, if you see your brother overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore him in the spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself lest you, be, lest you too be tempted. And then it goes on to say, bear one another's burdens. 2 Timothy 2.3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We, we know that verse. We've been, we quoted that verse at the beginning of this series. Suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. But notice, Paul said to Timothy, suffer hardship with me, with me. I'm not just saying, hey, Timothy, go out and suffer hardship. No, suffer hardship with me. Let's do it together. Let's be good soldiers together. Um, of course, Hebrews chapter 10 talks about how we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, encouraging one another, all the more as they see the day drawing near. One of my favorite passages is in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. 
talking about the importance of not being a, a loner, a spiritual loner. This is Ecclesiastes 4, 9. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So the picture there is this, this army that's standing their ground together, back to back, side by side. If you feel like you're this lone guy and I gotta be battle ready and man, I'm, I gotta be out there on the battle, I'm all by myself. No, you're not all by yourself. You should be connected, right, with other soldiers and almost like uh, in, in this, you know, you can get your, sh- your shields out, your shields of faith and kind of surround yourselves inside. There was a young um, one of the young guys in our, in our Crossroads ministry uh, several years ago decided that he was, he was done fighting temptation on his own and he wanted to get some guys together and, and have some encouragement and some accountability. And so they started meeting over at Whataburger late at night just to encourage one another, hold one another accountable. You know what they called it? Their gathering? Fight club. Fight club. I was like, I'm ripping that off. That's good. But that's what we need to be. We need to be a part of this. Uh, Jay, Jay Adams, uh, the book I mentioned uh, several weeks ago, Winning the War Within, he's got a chapter, a whole chapter in this book called Call for Reinforcements. Call for reinforcements. Let me read for you just a little bit of what he says. He says, if you find yourself in the thick of the battle, losing your fight with the flesh, call for reinforcements. Don't wait until you have lost the battle and have to call them the guys with the stretcher. You don't want to call the guys with the stretcher. Call for others to stand beside you and help you. Fighting the Lord's battles is the business of the whole church. God orders you in love to move into the fray alongside any brother whom you discover being overcome by the enemy. Due to foolish pride, there are Christians today who lose battles with the flesh, not because there is no help available, because they will not avail themselves of it. God has commanded others to help you, and he commands you to receive such help, to fail to avail yourself of these provisions, and to haughtily maintain that you would rather fight by using your own resources alone is in effect to say that Christ did not know what he was doing when he set up the church. The only other explanation is that you think you're an exception, above needing help from others so that Christ's provisions, which are so important for other Christians, are unnecessary for you. Either way, the problem is pride. Jay Adams never took prisoners, man. He just said it like it was. He says, are you having troubles with your marriage? Are you losing a battle with lust, with lying, with thievery, with anger or bitterness, with discouragement? Do the forces of evil seem to be storming the citadel of your soul in some other way? Then call for reinforcements. Don't wait. You need additional forces right now. Close, close and personal ties with the church must be cultivated and maintained so that whenever the need, so whatever the need for help, the channels for giving help and for asking and receiving help may be kept clear. It's a good analogy, right? Talk about war and you got to keep those lines of communication and those uh, you know, lines for reinforcements um, always open. Well, the last one is pray that God would help you trust his promises. Pray 
that God would help you trust his promises. And we know uh, we've said this every week so far that these pieces of armor are to be put on by prayer, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. Romans 15, 13, this is a prayer that Paul prayed for the Roman Christians. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a great prayer for us to pray. Lord, would you fill my heart with joy and peace in believing you and your word? Well, hopefully that's helpful and giving you a little better understanding of what it means to take up the shield of faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for the many precious and magnificent promises that you've given to us in your word. Help us to never question them, but allow these promises to extinguish Satan's lies so that we can stand firm against his attacks. Father, thank you for the confidence that we have, that we know that Christ, when he was here on earth, prayed that you would deliver us from the evil one. He's praying even now at your right hand as our advocate that you would deliver us from the evil one and not lead us into temptation. And so, Lord, would you increase our faith. May we never be accused of having little faith. But Lord, that you would increase our joy, increase our hope, increase our peace as we just take you at your word and remind ourselves every day that no matter how good what Satan in the world may make things appear or sound, we just need to stick with your word and believe it even though we can't see it or feel it. Um, and that we would not just do it, but we would delight in it. And we'd not just pursue righteousness, but we'd prefer righteousness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.